Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. I was reflecting on the battle that Constantine fought in 312 AD on the 28th of October, 312 AD. Uh, Constantine went up to fight against Maxentius uh, in the, the, the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And this, this was a battle between these two uh, emperors that were fighting for ascendancy in Rome over the Roman Empire. And Constantine was preparing for the battle the night before. And as the, 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 the account goes and the testament and the witness goes, if you haven't heard this, that Constantine in that night had a vision. And in this vision, he, when he looked up at the sun, there was a cross of light that stood above the sun, and there was an inscription that said in the Greek, in the Greek, in tuto nika, in tuto nika. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. Any Greek people here, I know that you'll come and talk to me after the service. But that inscription in Latin um, translates to in hoc signe vinces, which literally just means, in this sign, you shall conquer. In this sign, you shall conquer. By the cross, you shall conquer. And so the, the shiro, the, 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 the first two symbols in the Greek of Christ's name, the X and what looks like a P, was put on the shields of the, of the, the soldiers in Constantine's wars after that. But in that next morning when they woke up, they went into battle and as God had done many times in the Old Testament, as we see many different battles taking place, and what's interesting when you read the Old Testament is how you see that those battles always have a spiritual element. Even in the Old Testament, you know, you think about the fall of Jericho. They weren't fighting with swords and with, and with spears and with shields. They were fighting the battle in the spirit. There was a walk. There was a spiritual authority. There was taking control over the spirits in that place, and they did it in silence. There was no murmuring or complaining. There was faith. Then there was a shout of praise. Even as in the Old Testament, they would send those who, who led worship up front in front of the army because the battle is firstly spiritual before it's physical. You send the worship out first and the practical fighters behind. And even when we look at uh, Elisha with his servant, when, when they got up and they got up out of their tent and they looked around and they were surrounded by an army and the servant ran to Elisha and said, we're surrounded. And he said, no, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant was confused because it was just the two of them. How could those who are be with us be more than those that are surrounding us? And the prophet prayed and he said, God, open up his eyes. And all of a sudden, he saw all around the, the physical armies coming against them that day, the armies of heaven. When it says God is, is the host of heaven, the full translation of that would be the commander of heaven's armies, of all of the armies of heaven. God is the commander in chief of heaven's armies. And sometimes we see the physical battle. We see the physical things coming against us. But if our eyes opened up in the spiritual, like the prophet could see, he, we would see that those that are with us are more than those that are with them. Because we have the host of heaven's armies on our side. We have the legions of angels standing ready to fight beside us. And so there was a, there's, there's this, there's this, 
uh, victory that we can lay a hold of and that we can understand in the spirit in the battles that we fight. Constantine went up and as God often in the Old Testament con- confused the armies in their, in their battles against the Israelites, we see that uh, Maxentius and his armies made a fatal flaw when they were preparing for that battle and they set up to stand their ground too close to the Tiber River. And as a result, when the cavalry of Constantine broke through the lines and, and the infantry started going in to fight, they wanted to retreat and make a last stand at, you know, just before the city of Rome, but couldn't retreat quick enough because they had set up too close to the river. And in trying to get across the bridge, they realized it was futile. Their, their escape was cut off and they built, and, and this kind of gives you a time frame for how long these battles would last because they had enough time to build a temporary bridge. But how many of you know when you build with the temporary when you build in the physical, when you try and win the battle with just temporary, earthly, natural means and measures, it never holds up. And in trying to escape across their temporary bridge built alongside the Milvian Bridge, uh, the bridge at one point collapsed. And their soldiers were plunged into the Tiber River, and many of them drowned, including Maxentius, which brought an end to that battle. Constantine had the victory that God had given him strategically, but had told him before that I will give you the victory. In this sign, you will conquer. He didn't become a a Christian immediately, but he couldn't shake this. And sometime later um, that year, Constantine, the emperor, now the sole emperor of the whole Roman Empire, became a Christian, gave his life to Christ. And the next year in 313 AD, he signed the Edict of Milan, which ended uh, empire-wide persecution of Christians. Empire state um, uh, uh, enforced persecution of Christians. And Christians faced a lot of persecution all the way back from, you know, the 66, 67 AD with the Emperor Nero. And then there were pockets of persecution and pockets of peace. It wasn't consistent for 300 years, but for much, much of the 300 years in various place, places, these Christians were persecuted. And under Diocletian, the emperor Diocletian, it really ramped up from 303 to 311 AD. Like just before Constantine became the emperor, it was incredibly tough. Many believers were put to death until this moment when Constantine had this vision. And all of that just sounds like history. I'm sure you're sitting here this morning going, how long is he going to carry on with a, with a history lesson? But, you know, I always try and put myself in, in the position, in the shoes of those believers in that time, facing what they faced and, and, um, and, and try and experience the reality of all of that, thinking about how I would have felt if I was in, that, in those times. And, and the truth is, is that for th- nearly three centuries, 300 years, Christians faced the worst kind of persecution across the Roman Empire. They were seen as enemies of the state. And I kind of imagine how it would have felt like to have had friends or or loved ones or parents or children, people that you care about, seeing them imprisoned, seeing them tortured, seeing them beaten to death or burnt at the stake or crucified alive. 
We prayed for a couple in our church this morning, and there's tears as they move to a new city. And, 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 but imagine if we come to church and we find out, oh no, in this past week, three more of our family here had been burnt at the stake, had been tortured to death, had been imprisoned. You've got wives with kids at homes while dads are being fed to lions. This was the reality of the Christian church under the persecution of the Roman Empire. And then all of a sudden, the incoming emperor, sole ruler of all of the Roman Empire has an encounter with Jesus. There's something significant in that. There's a reason why that happened. And the reason is, is because the church in the first century knew how to do battle in the spirit. That group of Christians was not going to overthrow the Roman Empire by a military coup. But they were going to overthrow and infiltrate and ultimately overtake the Roman Empire and outlast the Roman Empire by 2,000 years plus by winning the battle in the spirit. Because Paul says in Ephesians 6 that the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a physical battle, but a battle in the spirit. And so the early church, while facing that persecution and, and, and that injustice, they did what Jesus told them to do. In Matthew 5 verse 44, Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You want to know why Constantine had a vision of Jesus? I can tell you now. Because the church was praying for him. Because believers were doing battle in the spirit. And we overlook the power of prayer in the spiritual armor of God that he has given us, as well as the power of love. Do you know that love is the most powerful weapon when it comes to spiritual warfare? You can take any hardened sinner, Satanist, atheist, whatever you want to want to, want to take, and, and just show them the love of Christ. Recently in our country, one of the co-founders of the Satanic Church came to Christ after Christians showed him kindness. It's a weapon of our warfare. It's how we win souls, not by beating people up, but by loving them. Not by overcoming them and putting them down and and, and marginalizing them, but by loving them. This is how we overcome as believers. We endure all things. We believe all things. We, we, we hope all things. We stand in love. That's what love does. And so this is what happened uh, in this time with these believers. They understood the power of prayer and truth, the truth of where their battle was to be won. If we skip ahead in a few verses in Ephesians 6, Paul actually mentions prayer as one of the weapons. And, you know, often we talk about the six weapons of warfare and, and the different things that he mentions. But as he gets to Ephesians 6.16, this is what Paul says. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We're going to talk about that today. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But then he says this, he carries on. There's a, there's a comma on that sentence, not a full stop. Part of how you take the, the sword of the spirit and, and wield it in order to have victory is by praying at all times in the spirit. Prayer 
is an often overlooked weapon of warfare with all prayer and supplication. And so there is, there is prayer in the Spirit. There is prayer in the Spirit, by the Spirit. And there is prayer to, to let God know with, with petition and supplication. To let God know what your needs are. This is, this is how we trust in Him and, and fight the battle against the things that, that come against us. The early church understood this. One important part of the weapon and the armor of God that he has given us is the weapon of prayer, specifically prayer in the spirit. Now, a lot of people argue and say, well, prayer in the spirit just means prayer that's driven by the Holy Spirit. And that is true to some part. But Paul also does say this in 1 Corinthians 14, 14. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, prayer in the spirit, but my mind is unfruitful. You try and pray without thinking of something. Like you've got to think about the word before you say the word. Now you, you know, so how can you pray if your mind is unfruitful? And Paul then clarifies, he says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And so there is a place for both. There's praying in the spirit at all times, and then there's praying with all prayer and supplication. Two different kinds of prayer. One is in the spirit. He says, when I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful. I will pray in the spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. As God brings things to my mind, I will think about them and I will pray. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. And so you see, praying in the spirit is when your spirit links up to the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit gives us the utterance as we trust in him. And we begin to speak and pray in a heavenly language. Paul writes about it again in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, you know, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels. So we have the opportunity to pray as God leads us to pray for our needs, to make our needs known to God. But we also have the ability to make war in the spirit by praying the perfect will of God. And you, you don't even have to try and figure out what the perfect will of God is. The Holy Spirit will pray the perfect will of God through you. That means any attacks and plans that the enemy has for your life, God already knows about them. You don't know about them. You don't know about what the enemy has planned to bring against your life tomorrow, but God does. So spend some time praying in the Spirit every day, and God is praying over you, through you, for your life. It's a powerful thing to do. You can pray in the Spirit, the perfect will of God, and it's absolute warfare. You don't have to come up with some cleverly worded prayer being worried about, oh, if my prayer isn't good enough, will God be able to protect me? Because as you pray in the spirit, you're winning the spiritual battle. As a side note, I reckon it would be pretty unfair of Paul to say that we should all pray in the spirit as often as possible and, uh, and then not give everybody the, you know, if God didn't give everybody the ability to do so. Why would he say, pray in the Spirit, everybody? Okay, wait, I mean, some of you, those that can, those select few that God decided are good enough to get this gift. No, this is a heavenly prayer language for every believer as we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if it's something that you've wrestled with in your life, that's okay. I've journeyed with many people that have wrestled with this theologically, emotionally, mentally. And you know what? Sometimes the best thing to do is just to to give all of that to God and just trust him and say, Lord, if this is what you have for me, as, as Peter wrote in 2 Acts 2, 3, 8. Okay, let me, let me give you the scripture. <laughs> Listen carefully. <laughs> Acts 2, 38, right? 
He gets up and he says, this promise is for you, for your children, for your children's children. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And for all those who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. So the promise of the Holy Spirit and being able to pray in tongues and make war in the Spirit in this way is a gift for everybody. It's a promise for everyone. And if that's something that you haven't been able to receive in your own life, next Sunday night when we do our worship night on the 31st of July, 6 p.m., be here. We're going to pray over those that want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But what I want to tell you today is if a pagan Roman emperor can come to Christ, if somebody who is dead set on persecuting and putting Christians to death can have a vision of the Lord and turn around and sign an, the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, in 313 AD, to say that, that there's no more persecution of Christians. And then in 380 AD, signed the Edict of Thessalonica that said that Christianity is now the only sanctioned faith of the Roman Empire. Christianity took over. Took over the Roman Empire, outlasted the Roman Empire, spread to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said it would, because they won the spiritual battle. If God can do that with a Roman emperor, why do you think he can't save your mean boss? <laughs> Come on, some of you, you got like, I'm pretty sure my boss has meetings with Satan every evening. Why do you think that God can't save that family member, that aunt, that uncle, that parent, that child? Why do we think that God can't turn a situation around? If he could turn this situation, situation around, and, 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 and the, the emperors of Rome actually declared themselves God. You had to worship the emperor as an expression of, of a deity. And so for somebody who could have taken the title of God, to lay that down and to surrender it because they've met the true God, that means that God can save anyone, reach anyone. We've just got to win the battle in the spirit for their lives. If God could end empire-sanctioned persecution of believers, he can turn your situation around also. The question is, when will we begin to pray? When will we begin to trust that God can do those things if we simply entrusted them to him in prayer? There was a time in my life that I, I, I faced a major spiritual attack. I've had several that I can, you know, as I think back on my life, that I can talk about and, and, and really identify. But one of the first major attacks I faced in my ministry was when I was a youth pastor. And uh, within our youth at the time, there was just a major move of God. It was just so authentic and God-honoring and a beautiful thing to be a part of. We were seeing people come to Jesus at universities and high school campuses, and we would run camps for youth and have hundreds of kids show up, and, and uh, it, was, it was just an incredible thing. One of the, the biggest privileges of my life was to be a part of that. It was so vibrant and, and God-honoring. We were baptizing people in, at, in school swimming pools and at camp and just standing queued, hours, spending hours just baptizing young people, and, and something that we, that we just you know, loved being a part of. And there was a point in that journey where God warned us that there was going to be persecution. In fact, a young guy who was our worship leader at the time had a dream. And he told me that in the dream, we were sitting in the youth hall after we had run a Friday night service like we often did. And we were sitting there talking about how the service went. And all of a sudden, 
he, he turned, he saw something at the door and he said, what was that? And the next thing, water started flooding in through the doors of the youth hall and this flood was coming against us and it was threatening to drown us out. And that was just a, a forewarning of a persecution that I faced in that season after that when, when, uh, when every kind of falsehood was leveled against me. I was suspected of all kinds of things I had truly before God never even imagined in my heart, but they were being brought against me consistently over and over again as if I was some other person. It felt like when they spoke those things, they were speaking about somebody else because I had never even had those thoughts. And it came against me in a big way with, a, with, an, with in my view, an attempt by the enemy to end what God was doing amongst the young people. Now, why does God forewarn us? Why does he forewarn us of, of these things that are going to come against us? Why does God not just end the persecution? We'll get into that a little bit, but, but, but why does God warn us of things that are to come? We see it even in the Bible. Jesus says it, and, and, uh, and, and you know, Agabus warns, warns Peter of it, and there's various occasions in Acts where they say there will be persecution on the road ahead. And I've thought about it often because those things have often come to pass, those, those warnings. But you know why? I think the reason why God does it is because so that when it happens, we're not tempted to think that God didn't know it was going to happen. Right? So God forewarns us in order to remind us that he is prepared. That he will know when that thing arrives. You're like, oh, yeah, God told me this was going to happen. So obviously he has a plan. It gives us so much hope in the midst of it because we know we won't be overcome. In Revelations 2.10, Jesus says this to the church. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. You see, God's not afraid of the challenges we're going to face. He's not worried about you because he knows he's going to be there with you. Listen to this. He says, now the church was going to face persecution, but look at the source of the persecution. He doesn't say, behold, the people of the city are going to come and throw you into prison. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. How would the devil throw you in prison? And if there's only one devil, how long would it take him to throw hundreds of people into prison? Like you're waiting like three months later. You're like, I don't know when the devil's coming around in my house, but like I've been waiting here for a long time. You know, I'm packed and ready. No, it's satanically inspired, demonically inspired persecution of the church. As that spirit of disobedience works in those who don't know Christ, which we saw in the beginning of Ephesians. And so the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. God says, I'm not going to prevent the persecution because it's going to test. It's going to prove it's going to. And it's not a test like a spot test when you get to school on a Monday morning and the teacher says, all right, let's see whether or not you've studied your maths. It's not that kind of a test. It's the testing in, in, in the, the translation there would mean to prove, to purify, to deepen to strengthen. God cares more about our character than our comfort. And so sometimes some of this persecution will come against us, but God is actually blessing us through it. He uses what the enemy has intended for evil, and he turns it for good. He uses it to bless us far more in a far greater way than any other blessing we could have received. You may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. I love that there's a time limit on it. It's not endless. 
Even Job's suffering came to an end at one point. But there is a time limit. Be faithful, God says, unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I really believe that those persecutions bless us more than we realize. It develops our faith, deepens our character. God rewards us for our faithfulness as he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But the attacks against our lives, they're a reality. You've probably experienced that reality. And this is how it was for me in that time as I had these falsehoods leveled against me, which was really painful. I had people run away from me in shopping malls, people that were my friends, people that I had served Jesus alongside for many years. Because of all these falsehoods and these things, I would go, oh, hey, and they would see me and literally do this. It's an interesting reaction in public when people go, and then turn and run. So being me, I would figure out which, and then I'd catch up with him again. I literally did this, tap him on the shoulder, and they turned around, and again, they were like, which store do we dive into? And it's like, he has us. And I said, what are you doing? This is not God. This is not what God does with belief. This is not how we're called to love each other in the scriptures. But this is what happens when the enemy brings it. It's painful, but at the same time, that period allowed me to see the gospel like never before, to discover the love of Jesus, to know what it means to cling to the cross. It's one thing to see the cross like a monument set up against a hill somewhere and to walk past it and go, that's a nice cross. It's another thing when you have to absolutely cling to the cross in order to remain alive, in order to hold on to life, in order to, to endure that season. And I learned what it was to cling to the cross in a time when everybody else abandoned me. It released me into the ministry that I'm still running in today. I wouldn't have the ministry today if it wasn't for the beginning of what God did in me at that time. So I'll never forget that vision of the flood that came against me as it filled the room. But every time I do now, I remember Isaiah 59 verse 19, which simply says this, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up, will raise a standard against him. How beautiful. When the enemy comes against your life like a flood, overnight, it's like you went to bed and everything was fine. You woke up in the morning and the water was already knee deep and it was flooding into your house and you wondered whether or not you will be swept away by this flood, whenever the enemy comes in against your life like a flood, God will raise a standard against him. And I'm telling you now, the standard is the standard of the cross. It is the symbol of the cross. In this sign, you will conquer. By this, you shall have victory. Because the only way the enemy could have authority over your life is if the handwriting of the requirement that stood against your life, the debt you owed to the law, because of the sin that you had committed was a debt that he could claim, that he could uh, uh, make a demand against. But when Jesus did what the Bible tells us in the book of Colossians, and he took that debt that you owed because of your sin against the law, and he nailed it to the cross, saying that these people are now completely righteous and holy and forgiven, enemy, the enemy lost all of his say over your life. In this sign, you will conquer. In this sign, you have conquered. The enemy comes against you like a flood. We just lift up 
the standard of the cross by faith in Jesus. I'm not talking about, you know, what you see in movies when they get an actual cross and they're like, you know, the blood of Christ compels you or whatever they say. I can't even, I don't even know what they say. I'm not talking about that. You don't need to go and buy a little metal cross and keep it next to your bed. You can if you want, but you don't have to. I'm talking about our faith in the finished work of the cross. What it means to cling to the cross. The Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Every attack against your life, therefore, now, in Christ, every attack against your life is simply an opportunity for you to experience a greater measure of God's grace. The greater the attack, the greater the grace. It's an opportunity for the anointing of God to rest on your life like never before. Which is why James can say, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. Because there's something supernatural happening that's going to equip you and empower you. You're equipped for this battle. Let's go to Ephesians 6, verse 13 to 17. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Last week, we spoke about the belt of truth and how our armor and, our, and, our, and, and we're girded for battle, which is really what that means, to gird yourself for battle, to prepare yourself for battle. And we are prepared for battle because we have the truth of God in our lives the truth of who we are. We make war from the position of our identity in Christ. The first thing that Satan will attack in your life is your identity. But we make war having put on the belt. We're held together by that identity, the truth of what Jesus has done for us. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, we fight knowing that our lives are protected by the righteousness that we have received and walking in that righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, our feet prepared for the mission of God. We're ready to publish peace and overcome evil with good. There's an active mission we're a part of, and it blesses us. It protects us as we serve, as we give, as we reach out, as we share the gospel. He goes on then to these three items that I want to mention today. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the first one real quick this morning is, he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So a part of Satan's schemes is to launch these flaming darts at you to launch these flaming arrows at you with the intent to discourage you and to ultimately try to destroy you. And what Paul says that in every circumstance, in everything that you do for Jesus, in every step that you take, in every moment of every day, in your, in your family life and in your marriage and in your home life and in your career and in your public life and all the things that you do, in everything that you do in your, in, in your, in your belief, in your faith, in your serving of Jesus, let all of it be undergirded by faith. Let it be done in faith. We don't have faith in faith, but faith means to surrender to Christ. We've got to believe in who he is and who we are in him. Everything that we do, faith in the righteousness that we have in Jesus. In Ephesians 3.12, it says, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence. Why do we have these things? 
boldness before God and access. We stand before the throne and confidence. Why do we have confidence? Through our faith in him. Because everything that we had to be ashamed of was removed. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So you don't have to second guess yourself anymore. You can just stand before Christ. You have that faith. In other words, your faith is not corrupted by looking in the mirror. How many of you have faith in Jesus until you look in the mirror? And then you realize, man, I don't really know if I should have faith. You start to second guess yourself because you're looking at yourself instead of at Jesus. But the Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of your what? Your faith. So as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the shield of faith goes up. What are these arrows that the enemy shoots against you, that he directs towards you? Ephesians 4 verse 26 to 27 gives us a little picture of this. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So this tells us that there are some things that we can do that can give the enemy opportunity. Opportunity to to get one of those arrows, those flaming darts to, to, to injure us or to harm us. And what faith says, if faith is a shield, it means that we respond differently to our emotions, to our circumstances, to the the troubles that we face, to the injustices that we go through. We respond differently, and by responding differently because we have faith in Jesus, every attempt that the devil wants to take against you is, is shut down, is blocked. And we live differently, we respond differently, purely because we believe in the sovereignty of God. So that scripture says, be angry. And what that tells me is that there was a justified reason for anger. It's not saying, oh, you're not allowed to be angry. It's saying when you're wronged, you can be angry. There's a a real world situation here where you have right to be angry. But in your anger, don't allow anger to move you to a place where you're giving opportunity to the devil. What could you possibly do? How could you possibly not be overcome by your anger? How could you respond differently? Why, what would cause a human being to be able to be betrayed and hurt and lied to and, and backstabbed and, and whatever else and then respond in love or differently? to the way that the the world just knows one way, and that's revenge. It's one thing only, faith. You believe that God is sovereign, and even though you have been wronged, God will have the final say. So it's giving the battle to God in faith. When you're betrayed, faith prays for the betrayer. When you're slandered, faith surrenders the need to self-justify. And in this way, we quench Satan's arrows by trusting in the ultimate goodness of God. Listen to this. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. You're loved, so don't avenge yourself. But leave it. Leave it to the wrath of God. How many of you have been wronged and you're like, I have a valid case. 
I could really make them pay for what they've done. God says, leave it. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When you believe that and you have faith in that and people wrong you, it actually creates sympathy in you for that. And you're praying for them. God, forgive them. They do not know what they do, like Jesus did. Hebrews 13, 5 to 6 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, hang on a minute. Don't love money. How am I not going to love money? Well, Jesus said he won't leave you. How are those two things related? Through faith. When you know what you have in Jesus, you're delivered from the love of money. So we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So we don't love money because we love Jesus. Because we have faith in Jesus. He'll never leave us or forsake us. It's believing in the truth of the promise of God. His faithfulness. And what this does is, it doesn't allow bitterness and fear and betrayal and unforgiveness and all these things, anger, to slip an arrow into our hearts, into our souls. It doesn't injure the heart. We can, you know, we can roll with the punches, so to speak. Uh, you know, famous South African saying, we're taking knocks. We can take knocks because nothing pierces the shield of faith. We know who Jesus is. Maybe you've taken some knocks and you've been worried about your own soul, your own heart. Let me tell you, when your faith is in His sovereignty, you're going to come through it. You're going to come through it stronger than ever. Next, the helmet of salvation. It says, and take the helmet of salvation. This is an active thing that we've got to do. This is a major part of Satan's schemes against our life. The battle in the mind. The lies that he levels against our thoughts in regards to how we see ourselves, how we view God. He did it right from the beginning with Adam and Eve. We looked at that. Has God really said? Did God really say? That's what he always brings against us. What you think about, your fears and your anxieties, the attack on your identity, the things you dwell on. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 says, So that Satan might not outwit us. Okay, he's... He wants to outwit you. He wants to outsmart you. For we are not unaware of his schemes. So Satan has a desire to outwit us by you know, bringing us to a place where we're unaware of what he's trying to do. It's like an ambush. It's like a, a stealth attack. It's the most effective form of attack when it's stealthy and you didn't see it coming. But the Bible says that he doesn't outwit us because we are not unaware. And so we are aware of the battle in the mind. Don't pretend like you're not. Wake up and see what, what the enemy is trying to bring against you. Because you are called to make war with the truth regarding your thoughts. You are called to fight the battle in the mind. Don't take your thoughts as truth. Sometimes we believe our thoughts and our emotions more than we believe the Bible. Oh, I know God said that, but I feel like. 
Don't be unaware of his schemes. Don't be unaware of what the enemy wants to bring against you. Satan is the father of lies, and you know this, so don't fall for your thoughts. Put on the helmet of salvation, protecting your mind. In Thessalonians, Paul's, Paul calls it the helmet of the hope of salvation, which shows us that it's not just tr trusting in the fact that you are saved from all of your past sins and in this present state, but in every moment in the future, into all of eternity, the hope of salvation protects your mind. God is with you. He has saved you. You belong to Him. You will not be lost. We trust in our salvation and we live according to it. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. There it is again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, are not carnal, but are mighty through God, have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. Can you see that there is an active battle taking place in your mind? And you cannot win that battle through passive religion. You've got to take control of what's happening in your mind. Take the thought by the scruff of the neck. It's raising itself up in pride against the very knowledge of God. It's a lofty opinion about you. And we do not play nice with opinions that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. And so you wake up in the morning and you take that thought by the scruff of the neck and you take it to the Word of God and you say, you will submit. You will obey Christ. You wake up in the morning and go, I I'm not worth much. You take that thought straight to the Scriptures. What does Christ say about me? I am the one whom Jesus loved. God loved me so much that He gave His only Son to die for me. You take it captive. You do not allow those thoughts free reign in your life. There is a war that we're a part of and God has equipped you with His Word, with the helmet of salvation to fight that battle. This is not passive, it's active. Do something with what you believe. Take the helmet of salvation. Wake up in the morning and take the scriptures and make war with them. Make them obey the truth. We're not aware of, unaware of Satan's schemes. People can easily accuse me of being unsympathetic to those who struggle with mental disorders and depression and these kinds of things. It's actually something I know a lot about. But one of, the reason, one of the reasons why they misunderstand me is because I just refuse to play nice with the devil. I'm not saying that those things are not physiological. I'm not saying that there isn't root causes to it. I'm not saying that there isn't psychological help that may be needed. There, there are many things that we can do to help. But I also understand that the enemy takes the opportunity. He takes that opportunity to drive something into your spirit far deeper than just depression. All the way down to the core of who you are. And I don't play nice with the devil because I'm going to shut down in my life and in the lives of the people I care about, including every one of you, the lies that give opportunity to the devil. So when it comes to depression, psychosis, mental disorders, all of that kind of thing, you might be asking, is it psychological? Is it physiological? 
Is it just the neural pathways and how they function? Is it the chemicals in the brain being imbalanced? Or is it demonic? I want to look at an interesting scripture here this morning. Matthew 17, verse 14. It says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was, was healed instantly. In Mark's gospel, Mark 9 verse 20, it says, And when they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled out, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And so what becomes evident through the different translations, many Bible scholars believe that this boy actually had epilepsy, which is... Just a general, normal, well-documented, physiological disorder in the brain. It's physiological. But what happens in this instance that we see is that when the boy has an epileptic fit or a seizure, in that moment, the enemy steps in and tries to destroy him. Oh, he's having a seizure. Quick, throw him into the fire. Quick, let's throw him into the water. Let's try and drown him. And so is it physiological or is it demonic? The answer is it's both. It's both. When oftentimes when people have mental disorders and, 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 and things that they struggle with in the mind, the devil takes the opportunity to try and attack at that point of weakness. Even if you, especially if you're a believer, you cannot be possessed by a spirit, but the enemy can still lie to your mind. The same with hallucinogens, drugs, that people take even recreationally. How many times have I heard people say, I was on drugs and I saw all these demons. And then somebody else will say, no, that's just because you were on drugs. But it's really the gap in the mind that that hallucinogen creates to the spiritual, to the spiritual realm, which Satan then exploits. That's why the ancient word for pharmaceutical and witchcraft or sorcery is the same root word, pharmakeia. So in the Old Testament, pharmakeia meant medicine. It could just be medicine or, you know, drugs of some kind. But it could also mean, like in Galatians 5.19, it says that the, the, the works of the flesh are evident. And then in verse 20, it says sorcery. That's the word pharmakeia. Because where those hallucinogens and, and, and sorcery, where the, where the drugs and the sorcery, the spiritual realm intersect is when we give an opportunity for the devil. Which is why people through those kinds of drugs often open themselves up to a spiritual realm. This is something that in our country, locally, witch doctors and sangomas have used for many years, hallucinogens. If you look at Muti, they once did a study on Muti where they broke it apart to see what was in it. It was mostly just marijuana for the most part, just hallucinogens that open up the spiritual realm. It's been practiced for thousands of years and this is why there's an intersection between the two, between your physical mind and the spiritual realm. And it's why God calls us to be sober-minded. 
to be in control of the faculty of our mind through the helmet of salvation, to make war concerning our thoughts, to align ourselves with the truth so that when the enemy comes in like a flood, we raise the standard against him, being equipped for the battle. And finally, it's why God has given us the sword of the Spirit. How can you defeat the lie that Satan will speak to your mind if you don't know what the truth is? How can you make those thoughts obey Christ if you don't know what Christ has said? So we need to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Every time Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did He say? These three words. It is written. When the enemy comes against you and he tempts you, it is written. In order for you to be able to do that, you need to know what is written, right? Church, we've got to equip ourselves for battle. We call on the highest authority, which is the truth of God's word. What was Jesus doing at that time? He was waging war with the sword of the Spirit. The sword, the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit and joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So this sword that God has given us, it cuts right down to the division between what is spiritual and what is of the flesh. It brings the truth into, into view and separates the truth from the lie, even in our own hearts and in our own thoughts. So when the lie comes against you, use the sword of the Spirit to cut down. And this is why we base our faith on truth and not on feelings. Do you know this morning that faith and feelings are not the same thing? Are you aware? God, you feel so far from me. Hang on a minute. Is he far from you? Let me read. Oh, wait. He'll never leave or forsake me. Don't base your theology on your feelings. Base it on the word of God. Final scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's going to profit your life for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, that the man of God sorry, may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so God's word, as we wield it in our lives, as we read it, as we embrace it and believe it, it teaches us, it trains us, it corrects us, and it equips us to, to stand regardless of every circumstance. Amen? This is why Charles Spurgeon famously said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. There are attacks, church. We know that you face them. It's why we pray for you every day. There are things you're going to face. It's a reality of this present age that we live in. But God has equipped you. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Take it up and put it on. It's yours so that you may stay firm and stand firm in the midst of the evil that comes against your life.